Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week we're asking, on the eve of the World Cup in Russia, how should the West respond to Russian meddling? Questions about Russian influence in the election of President Trump are still unresolved. The American special counsel, Robert Mueller, is investigating claims that in 2014, Russia organised a conspiracy against America's democracy. Europe has been targeted too. Most recently, details have emerged of a Russian-backed plan to help engineer the Brexit vote in Britain. The Kremlin is thought to have financed extremist politicians, hacked computer systems, organised marches and spread lies. Its aim to deepen divides and sap Western confidence. Michael McFall is author of From Cold War to Hot Peace. He was American ambassador to Russia under President Obama. And prior to that, he worked for Mr. Obama at the National Security Council. He's now a professor of political science at Stanford and co-founded the Moscow Carnegie Center. Michael McFall, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. Your latest book is a look back at your relationship with Russia as well as the Russian-American relationship. Yes. Why are you so fascinated by Russia? I mean, I'm, I'm an old lag correspondent, <laughs> to declare. Uh, my hand, I, I covered Russia and I covered the old Eastern Bloc. But right. what, what took you took there? Well, I first went there as a college student in the summer of 1983 uh, to study at Leningrad State University. Uh, I'd never been abroad before. Uh, I grew up in uh, Montana, which is a pretty provincial state in the United States. I went to California for school and I wanted to go to Leningrad instead of other places because that was at the height of the Cold War. Uh, Ronald Reagan had just been elected and there were lots of tensions. And I had a fairly simple theory. I thought that if we could understand each other better and demystify uh, their society and our society, we could reduce tensions. So – in many ways, that's been a theme of my career as an academic, an activist, and then government official ever since. And the period that, that you've covered takes us really from the more hopeful period in American-Russian relations when you could open up the Moscow Carnegie Center, you could yes. have an open debate about what relations with Russia look like to what now looks like a, you know, a standoff in some ways as Chile as the, the, the Cold War. What would you pick as the, as the defining moment when things changed? Well, there's ups and downs over the 30-year history, at least in U.S.-Russian relations, right? And I want to emphasize I know the U.S. side a lot better than I know uh, uh, British-Russian politics or EU-Russian politics. Um, and I go through it in the book to describe what I think were some turning points. Uh, the biggest one that I think people forget was probably right after the Soviet Union collapsed when Russia was in dire need, uh, economic need, trying to build a state, trying to build a democracy. And we in America were distracted. 
we had the, a presidential election that year, 1992. Uh, people forget that the governor from Arkansas back then was an American firster uh, when he ran with the phrase, it's the economy, stupid which was a deliberate attack on then George H.W. Bush, who was much more of an internationalist. And so in that fateful year of 1992, we were not connected. And I think that had big implications down the road. Uh, but we had another start when I was in the government, uh, something called the reset. President Obama did uh, uh, have a, I think, a very cooperative relationship with President Medvedev. Uh, we got a lot of things done from 2009 to 2012. Uh, but the end of the reset, again, uh, was two things in my view. One, President Putin came back and he had a different view about the United States and cooperation. He saw things more in zero-sum terms, whereas Medvedev was looking for win-win outcomes. This is Mr. Putin's predecessor in Moscow. Yes, yes, Dmitry Medvedev, the former president. Uh, and second, right as Vladimir Putin was coming back to run for president, there were massive demonstrations in Russia. In December 2011, in the spring 2012, uh, they were protesting falsified elections, uh, the parliamentary election in, in 2011. But he blamed us for those demonstrations. Mm -hmm. He blamed America, Obama and me. And after that, we never got along again. You, specifically you. Uh, you said you left Washington as Mr. Reset and you, you landed in Moscow as, as yes. Mr. Revolutionary. What did you mean? Well, I was one of the chief architects of the reset when I worked at the White House, this cooperative period. Uh, that's why President Obama asked me to be ambassador, by the way, to continue the reset, ironically. But by the time I had arrived, there were these demonstrations. And even before my first day at the embassy, uh, literally the weekend before I had showed up for work on Tuesday, uh, there was a hit piece on me on Russian national television saying that Obama had sent me to help support the opposition, to give them money to overthrow the Putin regime. And it, that was tr not true. I want to make clear that, that that was not my assignment. But that was convenient for them to uh, use my appearance to mobilize Putin supporters and to undermine the opposition. That, of course, puts all the blame uh, on Vladimir Putin and his operatives and on Russia. But I must say I was sceptical about the reset from the start. And, and here would have been my, my criticism. Tell me what you make of it looking back. It seemed to me to have a very unclear idea of what exactly was being reset and what the strategic aims were and gains were. And it ran a risk which went probably even worse than I would have imagined, that if you'd offered up something in this kind of trust but verify was, was actually a very good phrase for saying I only trust the Russians so far. Mm -hmm. But you, you trusted them a lot. I mean, you went along with that sort of picture of Hillary Clinton wielding a large button and said, we're going to press this and we're going to reset the relationship. Yeah. Was it naive? No, it wasn't naive. Uh, and, and we accomplished very concrete objectives for the United States of America. It wasn't about friendly, cozy relations with Russia. That's a, a big misunderstanding, I think, about the reset. We had very concrete objectives. We wanted to get the START treaty done. We did that, reducing by 30 percent the number of weapons that Russia and the United States could have. We wanted to increase sanctions on Iran, which we did in 2010 with Russian cooperation, the most comprehensive sanctions against Iran ever. Uh, we wanted to increase the northern distribution network so that we could supply our troops in Afghanistan through Russia and reduce our dependency on Pakistan. It was about 95 percent when I entered the White House. We got that down to, uh, under 50 percent, vital 
for a military action we took against Osama bin Laden in 2011. We couldn't have done that without the NDN. We got Russia into the World Trade Organization, which we thought was good for Russia and good for international economic order in general. Very concrete objectives, nothing nothing airy-fairy about it. We weren't holding hands and singing kumbaya. We were pursuing our objectives and we reasoned that the Russians and Medvedev in particular wouldn't sign up for any of that if they didn't think it was in their interest as well. But the weakness then surely was that Medvedev was a domino who was going to fall and you were going to get Vladimir Putin. So looking back, what would you have changed? Well, you don't get to choose who's in the Kremlin when you uh, are at the White House. Uh, president Medvedev was the president. Uh, we actually tried to reach out to Prime Minister Putin several times, by the way. I write about it in the book where we did some kind of crazy things, calling him to talk about the Olympics and then saying, oh, by the way, could we talk about Iran? And he gave President Obama a lesson in Russia's constitution saying, I'm actually, as the prime minister, not in charge of foreign policy. But it just so happens I have the president sitting right here and let me hand him the phone so he can talk to you about Iran. So and did we invest too much in Medvedev? I would say no. We invested in trying to get things done that we wanted to, knowing fully well, by the way, that it was very likely that Putin was going to come back. And tell me a bit about looking into Mr. Putin's eyes. You've mentioned him, I think, in, in the book, often getting angry and that he could flick from basically being the kind of professional head of state yes. role to actually being quite confrontational. Yeah, it's a tactic I've seen him use with me personally, but also with President Obama and Secretary of State Clinton. Uh, he does his homework for these meetings. Uh, he's not afraid to try to get under the skin of his interlocutors or to embarrass them when the cameras are on. I, I've seen him do that from time to time as How well. How would he do that? Uh, well, he did it. I remember his, especially with Secretary Clinton on one visit where he kind of put her on the spot about whether she was going to be serious about WTO membership or not. He did the same with the vice president, Vice President Biden, saying, oh, we're going to have open uh, visa travel now. Didn't you agree to that in the meeting? So he's not, a, he, he's not afraid to embarrass people. With me, it was much more sinister. He truly believed that I was trying to undermine his regime. And he told me very bluntly that they were going to stop me from doing that. Um, what do you make now of Russia's influence uh, with the West? And I'm, I'm thinking here specifically of, of, of course, the American context of Robert Mueller's investigation. I mean, yeah. Do you see it as a continuation of what you experienced, perhaps just boosted as many good and bad things are by technology? Or do you think there's a complete change in the strategic intention behind it? Well, I think in Putin's view, what he did in 2016 was payback for what he believed we did in his elections back in especially the December parliamentary elections in 2011 when he said on the record that Secretary Clinton sent a signal to the opposition to go out and demonstrate against him. He said that publicly and privately I can tell you that he was very upset about the statement she made about that parliamentary election and, and had his president, Medvedev, call Obama. I was on the call and said, does she speak for the Obama administration? But I do think it's qualitatively new. If before he was playing a lot of defense against Western policies, now he's on the offense and he thinks he's achieving his objectives. I think for him, uh, the intervention in 2016 was pretty cheap. 
There has not been a lot of consequences. And so I think that will tempt him to look for other opportunities, not just in the United States, by the way, but throughout Europe. I think the next big target will be Ukraine and their presidential elections in 2019, where you're going to see lots of Russian influence to try to affect the outcome of that election. And what should the West do in response to Russia's meddling? Simply warn and stand back or take countermeasures of its own? This is an uncertainty really about how to play this part of yes. the game with Russia. Yeah, well, I think it took – I don't want to speak for the West. Uh, I want to be more humble than that and just speak about the United States. Without question, it took us all by surprise. It took the White House by surprise, the Clinton campaign by surprise and even people like me. I, you know, I remember writing – the first piece I wrote was in August 2016 suggesting that Putin was intervening in our elections and the hate mail I got and the, the criticism about how crazy I was. You know, these were the scars of my time as ambassador you know, that, that I was reacting to that. Now I think we know a lot more about what they did. I think we need still to know a lot more. Mr. Mueller needs to finish his work. But we haven't responded, I don't think, in a strategic way. Uh, for instance, we haven't built up our resilience of our computers and our networks that are responsible for counting the votes. We're still vulnerable. Two, on disinformation, we as a society, we as a government, we as social media platforms, I live in the Silicon Valley, so I deal with Facebook and Twitter and Google all the time. And how do you deal with disinformation, right? When a video is put out about you that says you're a pedophile, as happened to me in 2012, yeah, what, do do? what do you do? Do you get on Twitter and say, no, I'm not a pedophile? And then, you know, all the, the trollers come out and says, yes, you are. That, that doesn't work. And so what's the responsibility of companies to inform their readers about what is uh, propagated and what is circulated on their platforms? You know, my own view is that they should at least tell them the origins of that content. So, so uh, their readers should, should know who is producing the content. But even that is a controversial idea within America today. So I think we're still learning how we deal with these new technologies and these new methods. We're talking here in London in the wake of the Salisbury poisoning, uh, the Skripal poisoning, which has unleashed a yes, rather fierce war of words uh, between the British government and Moscow and has led uh, through a couple of steps to Roman Abramovich, one of the big oligarchs who'd been living in, in London, uh, not coming back. His visa right. was delayed. <clears throat> he then said he wasn't putting up with that and has, has gone off to, uh, Israel. to Israel, yes. where it turns out that, that, that he can live. Do you think this has been a, a wise way to go at the aftermath of this kind of standoff, this rather serious affair, where the Russians, of course, say that they uh, yeah, were not directly responsible? Well, I want to be cautious sitting in London to tell people uh, you know, what, what, what they should do at their own country. I respect the sovereignty of other countries. Well, we're, we're duly respected. Okay. But is it the right thing? I think you have to push back. I, I do. I do think you have to push back. I think that's what Putin knows. If there's not some resistance to this aggressive behavior, then uh, the lesson is we can get away with it. And, and I think in particular after 2014 and the annexation of Crimea and the support of separatists in eastern Ukraine, the West as a whole took the right decision to one, sanction people that were involved in that, uh, to two, to strengthen NATO, to, to reduce the possibility of further intervention in, in uh, NATO allied countries and three to support Ukraine. And, and while you're pushing back, by the way, doesn't mean you can't cooperate in other areas. 
Uh, we learned how to do that during the Cold War. I think actually Ronald Reagan and, and your prime minister, uh, Thatcher, was very good at that. So there was pushback but also cooperation. So we did arms control in the 80s at the same time that we were pushing back on other more aggressive foreign policies. And tragically, I think we have to return to that strategy. I mean, just to dig into that a bit, I was with a a couple of of the big oligarchs who live in in London last night. They would claim, of course, they were nowhere near as close to the Putin regime as Abramovich. But they they raised uh, this criticism, and I thought it was an interesting one, which is if you start to use visas as sort of pawns in this game, making it hard for someone who, you know, owns Chelsea Football Club to get right. back into Britain. Effectively, you're having sort of one rule for one person and one for another. So yes. you're, you're using the sort of visa system right. in that way. The answer would be, I suppose, that he was on this list of influential people who, uh, in the eyes of, of the American administration, could be seen as, as close to Putin or right. sort of cat's paw of Putin. Does this chain sort of add up as far as you've seen the list? Do you think it, it makes sense? Just to be clear, these visa games also affects me. I'm on the sanctions list with Russia. You know, explain why I am. I'm a professor at Stanford. So it goes both ways. I'm not allowed to travel to Russia right now. I'm on good company. The last former U.S. ambassador to Moscow on that list was George Kennan. But, you know, they play this game too. Let's Let's not forget that. You know, my own view of sanctions is when you do something egregious like annexation, which we all thought was extinct after World War II, uh, annexation in Europe, there needs to be a response to that. And I think sanctions was the appropriate way to do that. What I think would be more appropriate is more targeted sanctions to those that are actually close to Putin. The last round of sanctions from the Trump administrations, for instance, I don't understand the theory behind it. One of the people on that list, uh, Mr. Vexelberg, in my view, is not somebody close to Putin. So why uh, by sanctioning him, you're actually uh, forcing him to sell his assets to, I think, people that are, are close to Putin. And I don't think that actually serves the objectives that the Trump administration was trying to so achieve. So you'd like to see a more a smaller list or a more – when you say more targeted, everybody those always close to calls Putin. for that. Those. those close to Putin. Punish those people that are close to Putin, uh, number one. And then two – That will more, ramp things up still further. Uh, you know – assassinating people on your territory, that's not ramping things up. That seems And so pretty... you do believe that, that uh, the Kremlin had a, I don't, a, a direct I'm reading what your prime minister said, not what I say. I'm just – I'm an observer to this. But to, to allow that to happen and suggest that the response is just, well, let's get on with football and let's all show up in Moscow, I think that's really the improper way to deal with uh, Vladimir Putin in this world today. If it were down to you, would you be sending teams to the World Cup in Moscow at all? Yes. Send the teams. Don't send the diplomats. I, I was at the Sochi Olympics, right, as part of the U.S. delegation. I, for the life of me, don't understand why we need to send prime ministers and ambassadors. These are sporting events. Let the athletes compete, but we don't need to make them political events. The offense and defense stays on the pitch. No. <laughs> exactly. And how do you think the relationship works between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? I mean, I have in my mind the difficulties of working uh, with Putin if you're an Obama or if you're a Hillary Clinton. I can remember the dealings of uh, George Bush, actually, and and even George Bush won. There was a sort of continuity there. This is a different matter. They're both spiky characters. Both you could describe as bullies. How do they get on? 
Well, the truth of the matter is they haven't met very often. They've only met once, I believe. They talk on the phone. And to say they have a relationship, I think, is exaggerated. There's no question in my mind that that Vladimir Putin has preferred Trump to Clinton. And so he is disappointed in some of the concessions that he expected from President Trump, particularly on sanctions. I mean, candidate Trump said that he wanted to look into lifting the sanctions and he hasn't done that. And so there actually has been quite a bit of continuity on sanctions between the Obama and Trump administrations, something that neither the Trump nor Obama people like me to say, but I think it's true. I think Trump has a genuine belief that if he could just sit in the room with President Putin, he could figure out a way for us to get along. Uh, I think he's incorrect about that and I think he makes getting along the objective when that should never be the objective of American foreign policy. The objective should be concrete things that serve our national interests and then the means may be engagement but the means may also be something more coercive. And when you look to the world order or rather the world disorder at the moment, where do your particular worries lie? I mean, you you said you worked for a president who was a liberal institutionalist. He believed strongly in support for international rules, for norms, for an America kind of led view, but that that would allow liberal democracy to flourish. One can't say that bit of it's going too good. No, it's not. Uh, And I'm deeply worried about it. I'm deeply worried in part because there are rise of illiberal powers in the world, uh, Vladimir Putin being one of them but not the only one that are challenging that system. Uh, But the greatest challenge I think comes from the White House right now. We have a president that doesn't believe that these institutions serve America's national interests and and I just think he's wrong about that. I think he doesn't understand historically how organizations like NATO have benefited the United States, how multilateral trading regimes have benefited the United States and I think he's doing a lot of damage to those that could have very long-term negative implications for the United States first and foremost. That's what I care about but also for our allies around the world. Where do you think that the greatest risk comes from and where do you think that Europeans need to be most vigilant in dealings with Russia? Is it Ukraine? Is it Baltic states or elsewhere? Well, the frontline struggle, of course, is Ukraine because Putin wants that government to fail. He wants that experiment in democracy to fail and he's using his power of which he has lots of different instruments to to achieve that outcome. At the same time that it seems to me that there's Ukrainian fatigue here in Europe and and most certainly in America given the expectations that haven't been met. So given that we have only a you know small amount of influence there I mean are there sort of other potential theaters of conflict led by or driven by Russia that worry you? Yes, I I worry not about the Baltics but the Balkans. You know, I don't know how much awareness there are here is in Britain about our allies in the Balkans, but I can tell you in America, a lot of Americans would be very hard pressed to name the countries that are part of the NATO alliance in the Balkans. Uh, But Vladimir Putin knows who those countries are, and he uh, uses his power and influence there. And I don't, I don't foresee a. A moment where you know Russian tanks are rolling into the Balkans. I don't see that. I don't see a uh, a proactive strategy. But I do worry about reactions and action reactions and escalations that that start for some kind of small reason and then can escalate to bigger things. And I worry about our commitment 
to recognize our Article 5 commitments to NATO in a place, in a faraway place, some faraway countries that nobody really understands why we're allied with them in the first place with a president who has already many times questioned whether we should be committed to the NATO alliance. But not just the president. We had John Lewis Gaddis, whose work you mm-hmm. know well, a leading yes. American strategist in some ways, you know, sort of a doyen of American strategy, said to me that he didn't believe that Article 5 was defensible in the context of the Baltic states. He said we shouldn't have kind of made the promise because he didn't think ultimately we would keep it. Is that doubt about what the West will do on Article 5 a lot deeper than Donald Trump? Yes, it's deeper than Donald Trump for sure. You know, I disagree with John Lewis Gaddis on that. I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. I've read his books since I was a kid in college. I think we can reduce the probability of conflict between Russia and the Baltic states because of that Article 5 commitment, right? Remember, you want to reduce doubt about what might happen in places like that. And that can lead to stability, not conflict. But having said that, I think he reflects a certain thinking about NATO generally in the United States, about why is it that 30 plus years after the end of the Cold War, we're committed to this, these relationships with countries that seem far, far away. We should talk briefly about Syria. That is one country where conflict in the aftermath of a terrible conflict, a civil war is is still very much alive. You say you know that you would have done more. You would have pushed for Assad uh, to be forced out of power in in 2011. Uh, that obviously needs a you know a number of more active steps that the United States would would have to take. Do you think you were ever anywhere near to winning that argument? Well, I just think people forget back in 2011 how weak Assad was at the time and the demonstrations were massive and peaceful by the way and the acronym ISIS, we'd never even heard of back then and and so we forget about that that was the moment for maximum pressure for some kind of peaceful – don't even call it democratic, just call it political transition and we decided that the only way we could do that was to get the Russians to put pressure on Assad. That was our strategy. And that I think backfired on us because Vladimir Putin had no intention of trying to put pressure on Assad to negotiate a transition. So what would you do now? Would you simply let it play out now that you do have the Russians in the heart of the conflict and in a sense, I might say, I would say determining the end game? Yeah. Uh, I don't – there's no easy solutions. Uh, you know, I think the best that one can hope for is stalemate. So the Russians and the Syrians actually don't control all of Syria. A, a big chunk of it in the east is controlled by us and our allies. And just holding the boundaries the way they are and hopefully that stalemate will one day lead to negotiation, I think is the best one can hope for. But I put that the probabilities of that happening at, at pretty low. Michael McFall, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Спасибо. До свидания. Все хорошо. Супер-редки. Now, what do you think? How should the rest of the world deal with Russia? Write to us, radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism and analysis, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.